1: Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We move on to the quarterfinals. So this is the fourth round edition of the show as we've been taking it round by round. We've finally lost one and we uh, we recorded it at night. It was really late at night. So I posted it in the morning. I, I think Federer withdrew about 10 minutes after I posted our last episode of three that is that is our luck we're going to get to that uh, at the end first let's talk about the actual fourth round matches that were played and uh, we will start as both Nadal and Djokovic advance we will start with Novak Djokovic who dropped the first two sets in a tie break to Lorenzo Musetti, but then really rolled the next three sets and uh, Lorenzo ended up retiring when, with Novak up for love in the fifth set you know it was close in one respect but at the same time, it kind of wasn't because Musetti was never actually close to winning the match and, you know, winning that third set that you need. But Joel, this was this was an enjoyable matchup, I thought, to to watch Musetti battle Djokovic, especially in the first two sets.
2: Oh, it was just some great tennis. I mean, Musetti, he's in his first major. He's in the fourth round playing Novak. He's just playing the ball, and he's just fearless. I mean, it was kind of like a sizzling shot-making delight. The backhand was unbelievable, and one of us was like a a missile that seems to fly over the net post and it was just uh amazing to see how fearless he was playing and novak was uh was looking a little tight hmm.
3: i thought it was a tale of two matches and um when that happens you can't really look at the match stats for the whole match because you know it's all mushed together so you really have to look at the two matches within the match and in the first two sets, Novak obviously lost in tie breaks. So this is one where I do like to peek at total points one, just to see like was Musetti really winning a lot of points there or what was going on. Novak had him in total points in both those two sets. In the first set he had him 42 to 37, in the second set he had him 48 to 43. Now, I know that sometimes that happens that um somebody, you know, wins fewer points and wins a set or a match because of the tennis scoring system. But it's just a little barometer to see is somebody getting lucky? Um, was Novak Novak not winning winning the right points? You know, and and really um, the kid was hitting a lot of lines, and um, if you were watching the match, it, it might have occurred to you that um, this can't this can't continue.
2: Well, I, I think that's really interesting. I think um, I think what was going on is there um, Musetti was was dictating a lot of points and novak was finding himself having to go for a little more hit a little harder than he appeared to be used to i think he figured he would just start missing anyway and i think musetti like we'll talk about this with sinner in a different style Musetti was said no this is the shape of things to come i'm not yesterday's news you're not young novak i'm young and it's a little bit of what we've seen from these various next gens but this is really this is really impressive, and I think what it really comes down to. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big system person. I mean, you can imagine how, the 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 way points go, the tiebreakers, and Musetti kind of sees the day in both tiebreaks in different ways. In the first tiebreak, it was tight, and he wins it 9-7. He's playing some more bolder shots. Novak was <clears throat> playing pretty, pretty kind of close to the vest, not really opposing himself much. And then the second set tiebreaker, Djokovic played terrible. He, he let a ball <clears throat> drop in that he thought was going out. And he goes down 3-0. He um, makes some unforced errors. He's just completely cowed by it all and not feeling good at all. But you're so right. He said in his press conference afterwards, I was actually more nervous when I walked on the court than when I was down two sets to love. Hmm. So <laughs> that was impressive. So I think he figured, okay, let's just get to work. Here we go. I've got to win three sets now. I've done this. Numerous times. I think he was saw uh, 30 and nine in five setters. So he knows yep. this drill. And then he just began to do his no. He did start to hit harder. It struck me in the early part of the third set.
1: Yeah. Especially with the forehand, it was almost like the tension was released from that shot. Um, but y- we've talked in the past about how Djokovic doesn't make mistakes in tie breaks and that he hunkers down and he doesn't miss. And the the misses were just shocking, in, in the tie breaks, to me, I was really surprised by them. In the same respect, I don't think Musetti was playing far above his base level. I, I think it was more Novak playing below it. Uh, I, I think that this is kind of who Musetti is. I think we're going to get used to seeing him compete for big titles on clay courts. And what's most impressive to me about Musetti is... How he performs in the in the big moments under pressure. He is now a career ten and zero in tiebreaks. And if you look at his record against top twenty players, it was uh, it's now six and four. He was somehow six and three against top twenty players at that stage in his career. It's just unbelievable. He's one of those players, and I liked I always prided uh, prided myself in in being this guy too. The more people who are watching, the better the better he's gonna play. And obviously, uh, he's going to have more people watching than I ever had. So,
2: Well, his test will be, you're right. I think you're right. I think he's going to, he's, he, this gave him win or lose a certain sense of the big stage, the big occasion. So then the test becomes, now you go back into the tour and you have a ranking in the 80s, 60s, 40s. How well do you bring it when people aren't watching you? And do you bring it just as much? I mean, again, and that's going to be a nice segue to, the, to besides Novak, the other victor we talked about today. Because, you know, Nadal doesn't care if zero people are watching or 20,000 people are watching. And I think that's going to be the big test for someone like Musetti to find, to continue to generate the energy and the intensity no matter what. I love watching him play. I think he was just wonderful to watch. And those first two sets were just dazzling. I mean, and the drop shots, and the sense of the net, he'll serve in volley sometimes. There's some really, really good tennis.
1: Let's get a quick uh, one-handed backhand comparison, Musetti to Federer. What do we think?
3: Well, um, I'd have to kind of break it down technically, but I'm thinking that Musetti doesn't take it on the rise like Federer does or has the ability to do at the moment, Um, but that could change. Um, You know, the, the, the reason that Federer is who he is is because he has allowed himself to make adjustments in his game. So I think it'll really depend on who Musetti wants to be as a player. Does he want to be a, a clay court specialist, or does he want to be an all surface player? And and if he does want to be an all surface player, then he might have to adjust and change.
2: I think he's going to look to someone. A person who just came to mind, and why I thought it was, I thought of uh, Mikhail Yuzny who became a who was a pretty good grass court player. So you're right. Yeah, uh, right now Musetti has kind of the clay court swing. He's got the a nice take back takes and he he relies on racket head speed to rocket through the court so and and in certain ways though i think that as a technique is a little more elegantly constructed than fetters because i fetters one-handed backhand has evolved over the years and so but now fetters is a little more the art of okay i'm a i'm timing i'm movement i can strike it sooner and of course that allows them to compete so well on grass and hard courts so it'll be interesting to see we'll see soon enough when Musetti plays at Wimbledon, how he kind of handles that because that's going to be his second major. And the, the tendency is someone like that goes to Wimbledon. They're kind of like, whoa, whoa, look at the ball. It's on me. So <laughs> see How he kind of, how he gets to, because it's not, you know, this is not a, a 1987 clay court specialist with the, with the long take back and deep swing. I mean, clay, clay tennis is so much more offense, but it's just a question of maybe you're right again how he moves to the ball, how he addresses it. And I- I'm excited. I, I think he's going to be a fine player wherever he plays, but it's going to take a little while on the learning curve.
1: He's going to struggle on the quicker courts. I'd, maybe he'll prove me wrong, but I'd be surprised. So I think you're right about that. Um, and uh, the one thing I'll say about his backhand, I don't think I the timing when he changes direction down the line is as good as I've ever seen from a one-hander it's just so precise. I, he just times it beautifully.
2: Well, this is sweet. That's right. Well, that's also, I think, a little bit of the, uh, of the aspects of the clay and the training because now when you're going down the line and you want to really drive it, it's not about taking the ball sooner. It's about properly striking the ball, right? Because mm-hmm. the, 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 um, the short hop thing is a little different. You're using incoming pace. I mean, here he was just generating it. He was just lashing and, but yeah. Yeah. It was very impressive for a while, but again, that's just going to be part of his arsenal. So he, it's a question of how he rounds out the whole package.
3: I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Federer Gill takes the ball down the line on the backhand side. Pretty well. He did that well against Kepfer. I mean, when he's on with that, that's looks really good.
1: Th- that's his competition. There there's no doubt. Um, you know, Massetti's still a teenager, so it's, it's hard to extrapolate. I just think, uh, I just think he – Federer goes cross-court, you know, and he's trying to set up his forehand, but we won't uh, won't spend too much time on it. Um, I, I thought Musetti's variety, backhand to backhand, bothered Novak quite a bit. But then at a certain point, Djokovic was winning the points so quickly, they just weren't getting into those rallies, and, and it didn't really matter as much.
2: Yeah, the other thing that Musetti did that I really enjoyed is how um, for Dan Evans in Monte Carlo, he used a slice. He used yeah. a slice to – He's not, not intending to draw an error, but intending not to get hurt as much. Because the one-handed backhand dri- driving it as Federer has seen, You drive a cross-court one-handed backhand to Novak's two-handed backhand. That's not good. That's not good. That's not really, that's not really as they say, attaining much purchase. But if you slice it, he can't quite hurt you as much. It would be, be interesting to measure the speed at which Novak's two-handed backhand goes when he feels a slice than when he feels a drive. And so now, so then Mercedes was slice, slice, cross, slice, cross, boom, down the line. You know, it's almost like using his own. It's just some really interesting ways that players use spin and pace in their own shots. It's fascinating.
1: It's like how Federer beat uh, Novak in 2011 at at Roland Garros, ending that long um, winning streak that Novak started the year on. I think the slice was an essential shot. In, in that matchup. Okay, so as we said, we're going to get to the quarterfinal meeting soon. Uh, Djokovic will get Matteo Berrettini. Uh, but now let's talk about Nadal. It was uh, a deja vu because Yannick Sinner served for the first set as he did at 2020 Roland Garros. And uh, once again, Nadal broke serve, won the set 7-5. And then rolled from there. Six-three, six love. Now he has a handle on this matchup. I mean, he still hasn't dropped a set. So I think Amy can take. I think you can take a little credit, Amy, for kind of writing off Yannick. Although he served for a set again, uh, but you know, you, you said it wasn't going to be a problem for Nadal, and by the end of it, it certainly wasn't.
3: Well, when I tu- tuned in the match, I saw that Sinner was up a break. I-, I tuned in a little bit late. And I saw that he was hitting, you know, just crushing ground strokes, Um, 88 mile an hour, I think was the average on the forehand or um, forehand winner. Um, At one point he hit a forehand winner for 102 miles per hour. And (laughs) I thought to myself, the match is over. And not in Sinner's favor, even though he was up a break and he was crushing those winners. And the reason is I knew he couldn't keep it up. And I knew that over the course of a best of five, that, that those uh, MPHs, that speed would come down and Rafa's would start to creep up. And I, I just, missed, right? what's that?
1: Well, or he'd he'd miss because he wasn't missing, I think. Exactly. Than,
3: yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to hit it that hard, you know, the uh, the margins are, are uh, it, it's hard to keep it going for that long. Yeah. So I, I thought Rafa's got him right where he wants him. <laughs>
2: Just like Novak did when he went down two sets to love, got him right where he wants him. They're well, I side. think
1: this, I Go think mar, margins is a word I think is really important here because when you look at their two forehands, one's got a lot more margin than the other.
3: Mm -hmm. although you know people talk about Soderling and how he beat Rafa so maybe that wasn't such a bad strategy it's just um it's a hit or miss strategy you know know. you're either going to go out in a blaze of glory with it and win or things are going to go downhill
2: well it's all but this is the this is the thing though with a 19 year old player we don't know what that we don't know what the we don't know what the full upside the full ceiling is we don't know where that's going that's the interesting thing about a young player that's the that's the dangerous thing if it's if it's Thomas Burdick who Rafa would have played many times he knows okay I know the ceiling you're going to get 12 winners this way but you're not going to get 25 but with a see and I don't think Sinner I don't think Sinner's game is based on hit or miss I think it's based on what Sinner's game is becoming and that's what we're going to see I mean it's it's no different than when when a young player a young Pete Sampras is serving 10 miles an hour faster than Yvonne Lendl like wow look at this guy but see you're introducing new new models but with sinner he doesn't have enough of it harnessed yet and again it is interesting like the same same exact situation um and uh it's interesting uh you know they said what do they say ralph Waldo emerson said if you strike a king if you strike at a king you must kill him and both musetti and uh sinner learned today well i struck and i didn't and then everything turns because you see, and, and Nadal, Nadal it happened sooner. Of course, Nadal is uh, precocious. He won it, but he won here the first time he played it, and Novak won it the twelfth time he played it. So, so it took Novak a little longer. But you see how Nadal, he, you know, and both of them, Novak served at 3-1, 40-15 in the first set. Rafa served at 2-0, had a point for 3-0, and then and then the youngster kind of turned it for a bit. Musetti's bit was longer, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're so right, Amy. Then it just turned. Sinner, once, once Nadal got to 5 all in that first set, there it went. I mean, Nadal won, I think he won about 16 of 18 points to win the first set. Goes up 4-0 in the second, even though uh, Sinner catches up. It's just, uh, yeah, these guys are so good. And you really see it vividly at these majors, don't you? I mean, this this was a great example today of how they withstood these young challenges and just, okay, you had your fun. Yeah, Big time for me.
1: Yeah. Joel, why do you think, and then I want to get to, uh, Amy and and your piece. Why do you think considering Sinner's game is predicated on offense? He certainly doesn't want to be defending against Rafa Nadal. He hit 11 winners and Nadal hit over 30 winners. How could that be the case when, when Sinner's relying all on his offense and Nadal can at least, you know, play a two-way game?
2: Well, Nadal's better. Nadal's just better. And and Sinner, like a little bit like Amy was talking about, he or we were talking, he he's not good enough at hitting them. He's not he's not good enough. and and also this, Nadal's faster. This is going to get to actually this is going to get this is going to segue nicely into some of Amy's research about Nadal's thing. And actually, and I'll uh, I'll tee it up for Amy, and you can take it from what I say. My a teacher said to me once that there are two games. There's the serve game and the return game. And we need to seek master of each. So Amy, why don't you just talk about some of this re- neat research you've done?
3: Well, Gil, just real quick, I was going to say that there's more than one way to do offense. I mean, speed with your ground strokes is one way. But there's also you know, depth. There's angles in the court. And um, Rafa is master of just about every way that you can do offense or defense on the court. So um, the story that I did was on Nadal and um, the way that the uh, Infosys, which is the data provider for a few of the Grand Slams, including Roland Garros, the way they group the rally length is zero to four, five to eight or nine plus. And I just felt that that was an arbitrary designation. And I wanted to see if there was one um, rally length, one number in particular, where Nadal was excelling on clay at Roland Garros. So I got Infosys to send me some um, collated data about the rallies. And I found that on the third shot, which would be Nadal's serve plus one when he's serving, Um, There was a big difference between the points that he was accruing on that and what his opponent was accruing, at least in 2020, where I got the full data set. And um, of of the seven opponents that Rafa played, the biggest gulf, the biggest differential was uh, with him and Novak. So... um, You know, I think in 2020, Nadal won 110 points on his third shot. That's winners and errors elicited. And um, his opponents won only 58. So you can see, you know, the rally data, it's not just about short rallies and and long rallies. It actually tells you where the point ends. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see where the point is ending a huge amount of time for him
2: for well so Nadal Nadal is is taking charge of the point on the third shot of the rally and the opponents are unable to exactly yeah. well this is how people and again I will use American sports reference this is how people win Super Bowls they got great offenses they got great defenses right yes so they, exactly they, they, they hit you and they don't let you hit them and again and, and in tennis also I'm going to transcend that even more because in the other sports you put your offense on the field you put your defense on the field in tennis, these things are happening almost instantaneously, you know, rapidly, and that's what makes Nadal. I think that's what makes him so compelling. When we talk about defense to offense, it's it's not even so much that. It's almost kind of the weight of it all, and I think a lot of opponents know, for example, when they return Nadal's serve. Better do something, better do something, yep. and I was thinking about the the lefty aspect of it too. Uh, in the old school, the lefty had the serve volley wide in the ad court and the volley, and the volley could do things, and that was John McEnroe, Rod Laver, very effective at that, Martina and I'm wondering if the better way to be even a lefty is to be reborn as a Rafa, where the opponent <laughs> has so even fewer windows, you know, it's like they can't even, they hit it, where are they going to return? So what if Rafa serves wide in the ad court? Where are you going to return? You're going to return down that sliver to his backhand, unless you hit it Really great. He's going to hit a cross court anyway. And remember, he's a natural right hander. So it's going to be like another forehand for him. I mean, it's just a remarkable set of uh, of assets and ways and, and your research uh, so so validates that.
3: Yes, and uh, he he did face center last year at R.G. as well as this year, and both times he got him on that third shot. And you don't always register it when you're watching the match because server serves, returner returns, the plus one, and then maybe the returner makes some sort of error. Maybe he hits it long or something, and you don't always register, wow, that was really what was happening on the server's end that created the outcome outcome of that point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this was a huge reason why Nadal blew out Djokovic was that he just had so much, he was so much better on the plus one play and it was a big factor in this match. And uh, I broke down, I broke it down on, uh, on my own channel and, uh, I had the zero through four, um, statistics. So here's what it was in this, ju- and this is just a random match. And again, it completely, uh, goes into, to what you say to what you're saying, Amy, So Nadal on his serve in points zero through four shots, and you did three, but I only have four. Um, Nadal had 24 finishes, so forced errors or winners, to nine unforced errors. And he was opening with the forehand on over 80% of those points. Sinner, same data set, zero through four shots on his serve, 11 finishes, 14 unforced errors we can go through a, a million different factors technically in both of their games from the serve to the return, from the defense to the offense, all of these things. But at the end of the day, this is what it is, is that Nadal is, is gaining an advantage so early on that his opponents aren't. So it, it was a factor in this match as well. Massive.
2: Oh, well, I'm fat. The guy's fast and he's aggressive. So he's just kind of smothers you. I mean, that's the whole thing. That's where I think Nadal has kind of, turned on its head what what's supposed to be defense what's supposed to be clay how i build a point and be it'd be interesting to see how when nadal started when he first hit the tour around oh four oh five i think he was doing that still kind of pretty well but obviously he's done it even more and more better initially it was allowed the cross-court forehand and you think i don't pure think defense? i don't
1: think his mind no no but i don't think his mind i'm not saying it was pure defense he was not trained to go after the first ball. He was trained, don't miss the first ball. It's the first ball, right? So that's kind of a traditional Spanish way thing. Never miss the first ball. You didn't even make your opponent work. Um, And and Moya completely said, no, 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 no. Stop. You need to attack this ball. And I think that's been a big part of it.
3: Well... just imagine my surprise when I was going through the data and I found uh, the the person last year that had the most trouble in this category or the, the biggest was Novak. So if you're Djokovic and, and you are, let's just say, he's not thinking about it now, but let's just say that it, it gets to that point and he's preparing to play Nadal. How Knowing that the the third shot differential in 2020 was 25 to 7 in favor of Nadal on this third shot 25 to 7 I mean we're talking about a sport that has razor thin margins on points um, what do you do to prepare
2: if you're Novak yeah well this how, is the, how do you so fix
3: this and 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 at least bring the gap close right.
2: this is the great thing about sports because the initial thing was that um, you know it was it was Rafa, and Roger, and then along came Novak to really uh, around 2011 when Novak really hit his rich spot, and he kind of like politicized Rafa, you know, when he beats him at the at the 2011 Wimbledon, U.S. Open, that epic at Australia, and he sort of got and so that's where Rafa. Wait a second, it can't just be hitting my forehand cross court, you know, the, the, this play worked against Roger. Yeah, this I did. not Roger got me sometimes. So look, look how I'm doing what this well against Roger, but then along comes Novak. So that that upped. Nadal's anti. He had to learn to hit that off forehand better and maybe come to net more and, and something. So then Novak's got to think of some things. I'd be interested to see what the frontier for Novak is. I think some of it has to do with getting his way to the net and maybe borrow some pages from the the newer Federer playbook. Maybe it's the more dynamic returning at the beginning. Again, Novak's a little less of a of a third-shot assertive guy. He's but
3: But – he does really well with the plus one on other surfaces, and even in matches where he's not playing Nadal. I mean, let's face it: the bulk of the the points in this sport come on zero to four. Okay, Novak is the number one player in the world. He does really well on this metric, just not when he's playing Nadal on clay.
1: Yep. Well, destroyed Medvedev at the Australian Open final. It wasn't even close. It was it was a it was a bloodbath in points zero through four. So that's absolutely true, but.
2: First of all, he gets to hit it inside out or his court to a guy's backhand. Now he's got now on clay. Again, this gets to some interesting tactical maneuvering. What Novak's play on a on a clay court or, a, or versus Nadal? He's got he, it's, he's got to deal with his forehand. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things here with and and a forehand can do a lot more. I mean, Nadal is kind of taking the forehand again into whole new levels.
1: Yeah, we, we got to get to Feder, but let me just, I- I'm going to say this. It's not an idea that Novak hasn't had yet. It's his forehand is not Nadal's forehand. And on this surface, that becomes a problem for him. So I don't think there's I uh, I don't think Craig O'Shaughnessy or any of his, uh, a- anyone who's trying to figure out tactics. I don't think there's anything to figure out here. Um I just well, think he, his forehand would need to be better. No,
2: I think what you need to do, I think what Novak needs to do. Hit okay, your forehand. Yeah. No, here's, what he's, here's something else. I'll, I'll, I'll think a little bit more coach-wise. Okay. Yeah, Novak, go play doubles in four tournaments, serve and volley every point. Make your volley that much better and figure out more ways to attack Rafa. Make your volley, do with your volley. Look how much better Nadal has made parts of his game. So Novak, who I think is more of a reluctant incrementalist volleyer, Figure out ways because it's it's you got to figure out where it all comes from. It's like a it's like a team making trades for certain positions. Okay, do this some with the forehand, yeah, the forehand. But this is pretty much the ceiling. I think Novak, there might be a higher ceiling out there for him with applying pressure to the I'm not saying he becomes Patrick Rafter. I'm just saying it's about how do you apply pressure, and it's not. I'm not saying it's going to happen in three days and it's going to help him win the French Open this year. But I'm just thinking about. Now-
3: now i did look at the and i was so happy that the good people at 538 let me include this uh, metric because i counted it myself and they usually don't take that kind of data but um i did remember the rome match where rafa played novak and the second set remember novak got him six to one and i went back and i looked at all the third shots and um novak Uh, held Nadal and Nadal did not win a single point on his third shot in that set. So um, I've watched that match now three or four times. I think I want to go back and watch it one more time because that was another match that it was like, please. yeah, two sets went Rafa's way and one set was a total bloodbath in Novak's favor. So I really want to go and study that set again.
2: So how was is, how is Novak repelling on that third shot? I mean, it's fun. It's like a it's like a detective show. he probably
1: hit he probably hit great returns, but
3: I'll, he did,
2: he yeah. did. Well, so then it's right. It's all it's it's really it's some really fun stuff. It's some real tennis stuff about okay, okay, good returns what return is going to keep me less is it depth
3: depth on the return now this is just an eyeball i again i have to go back and watch this match for a fifth time but uh just eyeballing it i remember really deep returns right at at rafa's uh feet although he's standing way back um just depth it was not what rafa was comfortable with right up the middle of the court i remember that Mm
1: mm-hmm all right, well, moving on to Federer, I know uh, last night, Amy, um, you were really, or I guess it was two nights ago, you were really hoping that Roger Federer wouldn't pull out. So I'm just curious, now that there's been a lot of time to process and the deed has been done, do you feel any differently about Federer's decision to withdraw?
3: The only thing that I will say, and in light of everything that happened with Osaka, is you really don't know what's going on with somebody. You can't. Um so you got to be fair and and he is one of the goats. Um so I've got a lot of people in my life right now that have a torn meniscus. Um and it, it's uh mm-hmm. yeah, like set, my coach has it, you know, several people that I know. Um you know, who knows? Maybe he woke up the next day and and you know, it was like a balloon or something. Who knows? Um, but he seemed to be saying that that Roland Garros was just his, his tune-up for Wimbledon, and I that rubs me the wrong way, because this is a Grand Slam, and it's a beautiful tournament, and it's wonderful and special, and I, I think it was disrespectful to, to say that about it.
2: I concur. I think that was a bit of a disrespect for the game overall and what's even sportsmanship is. I think better. I think he's, he sees so far down. He so far down the road for so many things. So I just get this picture of him Saturday night thinking, Oh my God, it's 60 degrees, thick conditions. I'm going to get, I'm going to get to sleep at four o'clock this morning and then I'm going to wake up Sunday. So I wish what he had done Saturday night, I wish he had reached match point and defaulted right then and there and said hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and just done that that's what uh tom gorman did that in the semifinals of the masters here, and just done something like that and then because he'd made it clear all along that he wasn't hoping thinking he was going to do that well at Roland Garros. there's no chance for me and all this kind of stuff and i wish he had done that and because smacked of a little pragmatism and yes he's roger fetter so he can he can do these things he's He's great, but he was fearing what might happen to him. And I don't think that's always how you go about competing. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna severely admonish him because I don't like to do that. We don't know. Right, like Amy said, he could have woken up Sunday and it could have who knows what the knees and we'll never quite know. And so he's gonna take his time and be okay and on to the grass. But uh well, upsetting.
1: I'm definitely the most pro-Roger Federer in this in this situation among us. Uh, I, I don't assume that he knew that that was the decision that he was going to be making when he arrived at match point against Kepfer. So that's kind of what I'd say to that. But overall, I, uh, I think that Roger Federer has the right to just be in the Roger Federer business. Um, a lot of people said, well, he shouldn't have entered the tournament. And to me, that would have been worse for much worse for Roger Federer would have been worse for the tournament who still got 3 Federer matches and um, would have been worse for the media and the and his fans like i just the only person who would have benefited from that is one lucky loser who would have gotten into the draw and probably wouldn't have made the fourth round anyway um so you know i see this as a uh, a decision that selfishly makes sense for Roger Federer and quite frankly i don't i just don't think that he should be overly you know that concerned about his co- competition, his competitors, or the tournament. I think that, uh, to me, I expect him to do what's best for him in this scenario. And it makes sense because he should want to play Hala. He does want to play Hala. Roland Garros, if it wasn't moved back a week, he wouldn't have this problem at all. Um, and I don't even know that he expected to to win three matches here. He, he himself said he was surprised. So that's why I'm sympathetic to, to Federer.
2: When Gil does the player earn the right to be in in tennis? When do you earn the right to be in the me business? Three Grand Slams, six Grand Slams, fourteen, sixteen. I
1: think uh, isn't it? Aren't you inherently in the in the me business and in an individual <laughs> sport?
2: Well, I, I yes, in a lot of ways. This is the conundrum, and it's funny. This is where some of the things that happen with Federer and even Osaka are going to be f- interesting to ponder in the months and years to come. I mean, that's a long, long discussion that I'm having with everyone from psychologists to business executives. And it really fascinates me about the whole, about the whole tennis gestalt. So I think maybe I should just yeah. button my mouth on this now and <laughs> move on to the Roland Garros matches that Nadal and Djokovic still have to play. Well,
1: I'm glad we got three differing opinions on on the Federer thing, because that's how the world is right now. I mean, people don't agree on on the Federer withdrawal. So it's it's great. And that's what makes the show great. Uh, let's go to Nadal Schwartzman. Um, 10-1 head to head. I mean, I don't know. You know, this has been this has been a strange head to head. But ultimately, Schwartzman um, is, I would say, similar to Yannick Sinner in the sense that he doesn't threaten with his serve, and therefore the task for him is to beat Nadal by winning rallies over and over and over again. That just seems like the hardest job in the world uh, at at Roland Garros.
3: Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> y- you know. We can get into this more in another show, but and and we have debated Rafa's serve, uh, you know, and and I have one feeling about it, and you guys have the other feeling about it. And I just know that um, there are a lot of return errors at Roland Garros off of that come off of Rafa's serve. So uh, Diego doesn't have quite the impressive statistics on that front. So, you know, if, if, Diego does some things really well that Rafa also does well then I give Rafa the edge just because of his serve
2: they make the return errors because they fear what's to come
3: well that's your opinion Joel no, you don't have you mean, any you, know, you <laughs> don't have any data to back that up
2: you gave me the data the data I got from you which is what he does with the third shot
3: well that's that's circumstantial but you're saying that the serve itself is not a factor well, yeah, here. Guess, there there guess, has to be a baseline level of pace depth spin it's, something it's, it's, it's quite it's, it's not fun, just fun. fear no it absolutely <laughs> i think no i think a lot of it is i'm not
2: joking i think a lot of it is that the opponent knows i better do something with this because soon enough and it's and it's similar to what okay i'll draw from an old school example john McEnroe had an excellent serve he had one of the best serves his time but in a way it was also it wasn't so much an ace serve. It was like I better hit a good return because the volley, he's going to kill me. And so McEnroe's first volley was Nadal's forehand. So I think it really does lead to a lot of return errors because where the space is, because you can't just, and and I think that's a little less the case with Novak. I mean, I would rather, I'd rather hit a a return to Novak's forehand. If you you drew the court in, in different colors and areas of where you'd be hurt, you're less likely to be put in danger. By by Novak's third shot, but I believe Novak's serve itself is is more proficient. I
3: I, I think that being left-handed is a major factor.
2: Absolutely. So, oh, no, but
3: there has to be some truth to what you're saying. Just so you know.
2: Oh, no, the left hand, yeah. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I'm, yes.
2: I'm glad there's. But the uh, oh, absolutely lefty thing. It's the pattern. It's the pattern. I mean, I think the whole the the, the um. I think Surplus One forgets the it all just because serve ret 1 serve return 1 and so this whole little sequence in a way that's the history of the game whether it's the baseline game or the serve volley game serve yeah. ret what I do yep. and the great ones look what they do with that look what Pete Sampras did with his third sh- shot look what look what John McEnroe look what all those guys
1: all right it's great to see arguments that have played out in the group chat come on to the air um <laughs> Speaking of serve plus one, uh, Matteo Berrettini, that's his, that's what he has. Like that's his bread and butter. That's how he wins. If he didn't have it, he wouldn't be in the top 20, but it's really, really great uh, what he does with his serve, both his serve and his forehand. And uh, that's Novak's task. Um, that is a one Oh head to head, but they've never played on a surface. Anything like uh, Roland Garrison, you know, his world tour finals. So it's not really applicable. Um, What are you expecting out of this one, Amy?
3: Well, this guy, Berrettini, his backhand is much maligned. I mean, anybody will tell you, oh, this guy's backhand's not nearly as good as the forehand. The interesting thing is Novak Djokovic knows that most of the time you rally to the person's forehand because even though it's great, it produces a lot of errors, so I I haven't really crunched the numbers too much yet on Berrettini and I know that on the backhand wing he also uses slice pretty effectively. So um I'm interested to see how Novak's going to rally to Matteo in this one.
2: Yeah, I like this match, I mean, and I want to get some thoughts from you about Schwartzman Gill, but before I want to first figure out stuff with uh, I like this Berrettini Novak match. I'm intrigued by that because he's he's got some big power. I mean, a little a little evocative though, a little more tops than, let's say Del Potro, you know, where he can really do things with the forehand and he's willing to, I mean, Fernando Gonzalez was another play like that way back just, and so it'll be interesting to see how Novak kind of goes about tackling that. We'll see some real problem solving, but Gil, I want to ask you, you, um you grew up in the Spanish system away um, Schwartzman, not too diff- dissimilar from your beloved David Ferrer. So what do you do? What, what's, what's the plan? If you're playing, you know, if you're Schwartzman, you're kind of like a, a middleweight version of a Rafa. What do you do?
1: You need to, I think if you're Schwartzman, you need to be changing direction and moving the ball around the court um, to, to just try to keep it away from Nadal's forehand. You want to really be trading your forehand to to his backhand. But then I think what what Nadal generally does there is he goes down the line to break the pattern. So I'm curious to know what Schwartzman ends up doing um, when Rafa does that. I thought, you know, Rublev kept stubbornly going back down the line. um, And most players will go cross court, including a lot of the time Novak. So, you know, I don't have a, that's not a great answer in my opinion, but that's the best answer I have. I mean, I don't know that Schwartzman can grind here. You can't grind and, and win against Nadal. You need to, uh, you need to do some damage or Nadal's just going to get the rhythm and the, the consistency on the forehand. That's the big problem is that Nadal's forehand as a weapon is so much bigger than anything Schwartzman possesses on the court. Like it, when, when Nadal plays Pass, at least there's two very scary weapons on the court together, right? And that's just not the case with Nadal Schwartzman. That's why it's such a, a pain of a matchup for him. Um, and then my thoughts on Djokovic-Berrettini novak loves this challenge oh um you're gonna give me a big server and all i need to do to have a huge advantage in the point is hit a neutralizing return that stays away from this big plus one forehand and then in a rally if i just pin you in your backhand corner which i actually think he'll do more than rally to the forehand um that's that's how i need to win oh great i'm awesome at that i think that's how novak looks at a matchup like this and I think I thought Andy Murray also feasted on these types that really, uh, you know, the big servers, not great movers, big forehands, these guys go, Oh, wonderful. I'm in my return. I'm going to bet on that every day. My ability to keep it in your backhand corner. I'm going to bet on that every day. So I, I think it's a difficult matchup for, uh, for Mateo.
3: Yeah, I agree. Even just from an experience point of view, um, I think it's a difficult matchup.
1: Yep. All right. Let's see how it plays out. We've gone very, very long here, but so much going on in the world of the big three. We have lost Roger Federer, so uh, it'll be Djokovic and and uh, Rafa Nadal from here on out. Quarterfinals next, getting to the business end. That'll do it for this episode of three. Uh, remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Rate and review on Apple, comment and like on YouTube, and we will see you next time on the next episode of